Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Check. Okay, there we are. You can hear me now. Everybody can hear me now. Good morning. Uh, Our thank you, as always, um, for letting me be with you with some of my favorite people in the world here at Denver Community Church. Our text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, and I want to read that to you now. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the organs in the body, each one of them as God chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body, and so the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body which we think less honorable we invest in with greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty." Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Before I offer my reflection on this, I want to give us just a moment of silence to see what the Spirit is saying to you through this text right now. Come, Holy Ghost, and speak to us today in the way that only you can speak. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. I want to start out this morning with a little bit of a question. I want to know, what did you think church was when you were growing up, when you were a child? If somebody had asked you, 
what is church? What is it, right? What is it for? What is it about? What is its purpose? What would you have said? Now, some of you, maybe you were raised in non-religious families, and so perhaps for you, churches were places of mystery. You didn't really know when, what went on inside these places, but you were happy you didn't have to wake up early on Sunday mornings to find out. For many of you, maybe you grew up in a, a culturally religious family, and so church was merely a place of tradition. You visited them on holidays when the family all got together singing a few carols or hymns before hitting up the Golden Corral. <laughs> or maybe you grew up in a devout Catholic family or a more liturgical Protestant tradition, and so for you, church was a place of ritual. There were robes and recitations, maybe even incense, all of which felt rote or even boring to a squirmy youngster, but at least each week was the same. Now, I was raised in a tradition, maybe some of you were too, in an evangelical tradition, right? And so for me, if you had asked me, I would have said, church was a place of belief. In my mind, it was kind of like a school, right? Except you didn't come here to learn about history and math. You went to church to learn about what you believed, what you believed about God and, and the Bible and the afterlife, about what it meant to be a good person or a holy person. From all I could tell, this seemed to be a faith community's primary, if not exclusive, function, and nearly everything my church did seemed to back up this idea. We had Bible studies for adults. We had Sunday school for kids. The pastor's sermons often felt like college lectures, crafted more to fill the head with specific facts rather than stir the heart with sacred questions. As a teenager, my church had us memorize scores of Bible verses and occasionally even drilled us in these contests to see which of us could recall and recite Scripture the fastest. By the time I reached college age, my church's small group was even studying something called apologetics, which is not actually the art of saying you're sorry, but rather the discipline of defending what you believe and learning how to convince other people to believe those beliefs too. Looking back on my religious upbringing, I feel grateful for the gifts that it bestowed, many gifts. For example, the litany of Bible verses now hidden in my heart have served me on more than a few occasions, often coming to me at just the right moment. But as I've gotten older, I've also recognized the downsides to thinking about church only as a kind of belief school. See, when a church's job is to teach people what to believe, for example, then your place in that community might be dependent on your conformity to the church's sanctioned set of beliefs. And anyone with enough courage to express serious doubts or challenge these beliefs, oh, well, you may find yourself labeled as a nuisance or a heretic and pushed by the powers that be out to the outer darkness. Some of you may know all too well what I'm talking about, huh? Additionally, if a faith community is basically just a belief school, well, then there's less incentive to become a part of one. The digital information age and its many advancements have democratized learning. We live in a time where I can watch TED Talks by leading experts with better oratory skills than most preachers without ever having to get out of bed. If I'm curious about a particular religious topic, I can stream a podcast or 
order a stack of books with a click of a button and even have them dropped at my doorstep with free two-day shipping. Thank you very much, Mr. Bezos. If church is nothing more than a belief school, if all of the effort it takes for you to get here, if all of the effort it takes for the many volunteers who, who make today happen was just for the purpose to create a place where you could all learn what to believe, well, then I'm not sure it's worth the hassle. But what if a church is much more than that? What if a faith community like this one is not just a place to explore what to believe, but a people with whom to explore how to belong? You can see the shift. Not just a place, but a people. Not just for learning what to believe, but learning how to belong. Well, if that's true, then a community like this one is one of the most important things in the world today. If that's true then a place like this is something that none of us can afford to live without. In the first century A.D., about 50 miles west of Athens, perched above a gulf on the Mediterranean Sea, was a bustling city called Corinth. And in the middle of this urban center was a Christian community that came to be known as the church, at Corinth, at its best, this community would have been a place of comfort for early practitioners of a budding and largely misunderstood faith called Christianity, but instead, the church at Corinth had become a place of great contention. You see, Corinth was one of the most culturally diverse cities in all of antiquity. It was a Greek city, but by the first century, it had been a Roman colony for more than a century. There was great economic diversity there, ultra-wealthy one-percenters living alongside the great unwashed masses. It was a popular stop for traveling merchants and seafarers, which means it attracted a range of people from a range of cultures with a range of perspectives on life and faith. But rather than become a melting pot of ideas and identities, this community had become a powder keg of difference. There were disagreements about sex and gender, there were debates about divorce and remarriage. There were contentious discussions about how various spiritual gifts were supposed to operate in the church and which ones were most valuable. Additionally, partisanship was a standard feature of Greco-Roman life, so there was a clash of beliefs and ideas around politics and society in this church. It had divided the church up into factions with rival thinkers all battling against each other. Nobody could seem to get along, which is to say their church was not unlike most of ours. The rifts there had grown wide and deep, and the community was now pulling apart at the seams. Before she died, Mother Teresa of Calcutta reflected on the divisions and the strife and the wars that permeated her world, that were tearing it apart. And Mother Teresa said, if we have no peace, it's because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. In her world, in our world, in the world of ancient Corinth, we are always tempted to forget that we belong to each other. Now, the Apostle Paul had helped plant this church in Corinth, and so he had a vested interest in its endurance. So Paul decides to become pen pals with the people there in an effort to help them hold it all together. 
Now, if you were raised like me and you're one of those blue ribbon Bible drillers, you might be surprised to learn that nobody has ever actually read 1 Corinthians. <laughs> you see, Paul's initial letter to Corinth was written in the fall of AD 50, and it was lost. Nobody's ever seen it. We don't know what it said, but apparently the Corinthians pushed back hard, and they sent back to Paul a letter with a list of questions asking for clarification, please. And then in the spring of AD 51, Paul pins along better back, a letter that we know by the misnomer of 1 Corinthians. And in the 12th chapter of that letter, Paul reminds the Corinthian church that amid all of their diversity and all of their differences and all of their disagreements, they belong to each other. And to help them understand exactly what he means and exactly how this works, Paul uses this fleshy metaphor of a human body. Now, when Paul decides to compare the church to a human body, he paints a picture that everyone can recognize, so relatable and understandable that his explanation is almost unnecessary. Nobody has to convince you that in order to rotate a soup ladle or throw a baseball that you don't just need an arm but a hand. And if that hand lacks fingers, well, the whole thing will fall apart. If you want to run a marathon, having legs and feet are a pretty good start, but you'll need a brain to make them work and eyes to make sure you don't run into a ditch. All of us born into these mysterious meat suits develop an understanding of how all of the parts that make it up come together into a functioning whole, right? But what Paul is saying here is that what is true of you is true of us, too. That we need each other. That we rely on each other. That we belong to each other. In 1943, an American psychologist named Abraham Maslow published a paper in an academic journal that attempted to describe the universal pattern of human motivations. He essentially ranked the most fundamental human needs and ordered them into a pyramid that has become famously known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow observed in that paper that the human need for belonging ranked third, just under survival and safety. In the many decades since Maslow published that paper, psychological research on this topic has consistently shown that humans universally desire connection and belonging. We crave to be accepted and included into a community. It is a primal human desire, and it has been universally witnessed in all cultures throughout all of history. You see, buried deep inside the center of every human heart is a longing for belonging. And Paul is reminding us that a faith community is actually a divine gift fashioned by the one who fashioned us, designed to meet our deepest human longings to belong, to belong. Oh, but we humans are paradoxes, aren't we? We often resist the very things we desire. The aspiring writer who sits down to give birth to their novel and then talks themselves out of it. The white-knuckled dieter who somehow always, always ends up binging junk, junk food after sundown on Saturday. The hopeless romantic with a pattern for ghosting suitors just 
as intimacy begins to coalesce, the eager exerciser who joins a gym in January and then quietly cancels it in June. And so it is with belonging. We often resist it even though we long for it. We want to connect. We want community. We want to be known. And then just as we start to enter into it, we're strangely tempted to talk ourselves out of it. We tell ourselves we aren't needed or we aren't wanted or we aren't enough like everyone else or that we won't fit in or we don't fit in or we'll never fit in. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body either. And so here is where we begin to learn some really important things about belonging in the body of Christ. And the first one is this. Belonging is not something you earn or create. It's something you've already been given. You belong because God has already chosen, verse 18, chosen to include you. A church can give you membership, but they can't offer you belonging. You already belong to the body. Belonging is yours. But, but in order to experience it, you have to yield to it. You have to open yourself up to it. You have to consent to belonging. Oh, now this can be really difficult for some of us, not just because we think so highly of others, but because we think so lowly of ourselves. As Brene Brown says in her book, Atlas of the Heart, because we feel belonging only if we have the courage to share our most authentic selves with people, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. I bet many of you have had an experience like this before. You show up at a place like this, like Denver Community Church, because, well, you long to belong. And then a few minutes into it, inside, deep inside your mind, you're sort of talking yourself out of it, right? You look around and you suddenly feel so out of place. You've lost count at all the numbers, unfamiliar faces you've seen. Everybody seems to be better dressed than you are. You don't know most of the songs. The speaker is using all kinds of words you don't understand. And worst of all, everyone else seems to have some skill you lack. You can't sing like Becky, you're not as extroverted as Bill, and unlike all the people volunteering in the children's ministry, you hate being around snotty-faced prepubescents. <laughs> I don't belong, you say. Oh, but you do. Because inclusion into God's family is not based on a feeling, it's not based on function, it's not based on fitting in. You are part of this body because you, like everyone else in this community, were made by God. And you, like everyone else in this community, are the object of God's obsessive love. And you have so much to give, whether you know it or not because there's no one else on this earth who is quite like you. And the gifts that you can give cannot be given by another gift giver because every gift giver has their own unique, unique gifts to give. This community won't be the same without you. You know, one of the most interesting things about bodies, to me at least, both the bodies that we live in and the bodies that we make together it's how some of the most important parts are some of the least noticed. Those two bean-shaped kidneys in your back, they function every single day without drawing much attention to themselves. 
But if your kidneys suddenly decided to quit because they don't feel like they fit in, where would that leave the body? When most of you say your evening prayers, you don't thank God for your liver, but you're grateful that it's keeping you alive. Similarly, you probably don't know the name of the person who said hello to you at the front door, the person who will clean this room long after you leave, or the person who smiled your way during that last song, but those are just some of the parts that keep this community alive, and so it is with you, and so it is with you. The thing this community needs most is for you to be you. You see, belonging never asks us to change who we are. It gives us permission to embrace who we are. But the decision is yours. You get to choose whether you want to consent to belonging or not. But if you do, that will mean choosing to show up as your fullest and truest self, not pretending or projecting or people-pleasing, but now a caution. The moment that you decide to yield to this belonging, this belonging that is already yours, oh, things will get complicated and uncomfortable. The reason you decided to join a community in the first place was to find friendship, connection, closeness, support, encouragement. And instead, you find yourself stuck with a bunch of people who always seem to rub you the wrong way. There's that annoying chatterbox who always seems to find that seat right next to yours. Or the prying person who always asks way too many personal questions and can't take a hint. The person in your small group with breath that smells like gym socks and has no concept of personal space. Or the self-righteous person who always volunteers to pray and whose prayers make your skin crawl. The person who says insensitive, ignorant, offensive things that make you want to commit homicide. <laughs> so congratulations. You found belonging. <laughs> you found the belonging for which you were longing, but you also found a whole bunch of people who are rude and insensitive and drive you up the stained glass walls. So now what? Now what? The Quaker mystic Parker Palmer in his book, The Company of Strangers, defines community as the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. <laughs> and he says, even if you find a way to get rid of that person, somebody else inevitably shows up to take their place. Belonging challenges our comfortability and routines and preconceptions by forcing us to live alongside people we would never choose to live alongside, which is a feature, not a bug. Because it reveals all sorts of things about us that we would never notice otherwise. When we're confronted with people's sharp edges and grinding personalities and confounding views, we start to feel confused, irritated, angry. But buried beneath all of that emotion and agitation is actually a belief. It's a belief that we would be better if all of you were more like me. If you thought like me and voted like me and behaved more like me, oh, well, then this community would be so much more enjoyable. And so Paul extends his metaphor to show us just how ridiculous these hidden beliefs are in practice. He says, imagine if a body were just a pile of eyeballs or ears. 
If all of it was a single organ, he says in verse 19, where would the body be? You don't need to ace a college anatomy class to realize that in order for a body to be whole and healthy, every part needs to be holy itself. You see, if a group requires you to change in order to belong, that's a cult. <laughs> and if you require others in a group to change, that's called codependency. <laughs> but a group in which people are free to be their true selves interacting in interdependence, giving and receiving with each other freely, that's a community. Belonging is bi-directional, right? Not only do you need to yield yourself to it, to allow yourself to belong to others, but you need to allow others to belong to you. And so you offer your full and truest self to the community and you allow the others in the community to do the same. And so Paul here is trying to persuade us in the words of writer Barbara Brown Taylor that what is true inside of your skin is also true outside of it. That wholeness is a matter of many different parts being themselves. That unity and diversity are not contradictory terms. And that our very survival depends not on our sameness but on our infinite variety. Taylor adds this. She says, now that's fine when it's my liver or kneecaps you're talking about. I'll rejoice in the difference between them, and I would not want either of them trying to do the other's job. The problem begins when you put me in a community with a bunch of people who look, smell, think, talk, and act differently from me because I do not handle the infinite variety outside of me nearly as well as I handle the infinite variety inside of me. Just as I was finishing graduate school, a church outside of Atlanta hired me to start a single adults group. I was highly, highly ambitious at the time and also not that healthy. The thing that I wanted most in the world was for my new ministry to explode in number. I wanted young adults from around the city to come flocking to the community that I, that I was building. So I started this Sunday night group with about 10 people, and I used this meager budget they'd given me to hire a friend to play some music. And I would spend hours writing these electric sermons that I thought would motivate people. And each week, I would invite everyone to come back again the next week and bring a friend. Over time, that little group doubled in size, then tripled in size. And soon it had expanded to a little more than 10 times that size of our initial core group. And that's about the time that Manny showed up. Manny's family had recently moved from Georgia to Georgia from Mexico. They were poor and undocumented. His single mother spoke only broken English. And she was nobly raising Manny and his sister. The first time Manny attended our group, it was immediately apparent to me that he had some, some physical abnormalities and some mental limitations. Oh, but he loved coming to our group, making friends, singing songs, being independent in this world of ours, if only just for an hour on a Sunday night. But there was a problem. Because of Manny's condition, he lacked impulse control. He, he struggled to read social cues. And so as I was performing, pardon me, preaching, 
these electric sermons, Manny would blurt out a question right in the middle of whatever I was saying, grinding everything to a halt and taking us down a rabbit trail. His outbursts became a recurring feature on our Sunday evening groups, and the rest of the group began to grow annoyed. So one week, a group of my head volunteers and regular attenders came to me. They said Manny's particip participation in the group had become disruptive and distracting. And they were concerned that if he were allowed to keep coming, other people would stop coming. So the next week, I called Manny and his mom to the church. And through a translator, I explained the situation and said I was so sorry, but Manny could not come back to our group. His mom said she understood my rationale, and as I walked out, I could see heartbreak on his face. I wasn't in that role at church much longer, but for the rest of my tenure there, a week did not pass that I would not look at that empty chair on that front row where he always sat and feel like a total failure because I had gotten lost in this swirling cloud of my own ambition, my own self-importance. And I had forgotten that Manny and I, we belonged to each other. Me to him and him to me. That God had chosen to put us together. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, belonging to each other means caring for each other. And he held up his end of the bargain, and I and we did not. Truly, when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. Because our community was worse off without Manny's light in our midst. He had so many things to teach me. So many things to teach all of us about courage, curiosity, about gentleness, and innocence. Things that we humans could, could use a little more of these days. You see, Manny didn't just need us, we needed him. Or as Paul says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Oh, on the contrary. The parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. Sadly, too many faith communities have forgotten the deep wisdom the Apostle Paul has come to give us this morning. That we belong to each other and that the parts we assume are the weakest are the ones that make us the strongest. That the parts we assume are least needed are the most indispensable and should be honored the most. And that's why the body of Christ should look unlike any other community of the world. That's why a community like this should be a place where we make space for rich and poor and middle class, for old and young and middle-aged, for African and Asian and Caucasian descent, for gay and straight and bisexual, for cisgender and transgender and non-binary, for introvert and extrovert, and people who like to take parties but require a nap afterwards. <laughs> but all this brings us back to where we started. So let's say you're convinced that the church is really at its core a people with whom to learn how to belong. 
then why bother? There are lots of communities out there that at least promise acceptance. And belonging in a faith community seems to come with so many unique challenges. Why bother? Why bother? Well, to answer this question, we have to go back to the very beginning of this text. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Scholars have long been confused by this, dumbfounded. Why did Paul write Christ? Was this uh, an error, a gloss, a mess up? So it is with Christ. You expect Paul to say, so it is with the church. But Paul isn't just saying that the church is like a body. He's also saying that the church is the very essence of Christ on planet Earth. This is connected to what the great mystics refer to as divine union, the coming together of God and human into one essence. What happens when we gather in Christ's name doesn't happen when we gather in CrossFit's name. In this community, when we come together around a mission and a vision of love, when we come together to care for each other and to suffer together, lifting up the weakest in honor, the presence of God presences among us, not just in our beliefs, but in the very fabric of our belonging. See, when you learn to accept your true self, you welcome the one who made you as you are. When you learn to love the other whom you do not fully understand, you welcome the great other who you can never fully understand. When you suffer for the sake of suffering, you encounter the one who suffered on your behalf. And in that moment, in a mysterious way, you are seen, known, loved, and remembered perfectly as you are. In Sufi mysticism, there's a proverb that goes like this. You think that because you understand one, you understand two, because one and one make two. But you must understand and. And you know who the and is? You know, don't you? It's Christ, the one who even now is right here among us, the almighty and binding us together into a community of belonging, fashioning I and me into a sacred we for the sake of the world. Amen. And now we're going to move into a time of remembrance of our own a time that we turn to the table to a practice that the body of Christ has done for 2,000 years that we call Eucharist. It's a funny name, I know. Whether you're familiar with this practice of Eucharist or not, one of the most important things you can know about it is that when we come to the table, it is not the church's table. It's the Lord's table. And that's good news for all of us, all of us individual parts, because it means you're welcome no matter what kind of part you are. You're welcome no matter what you've done or what you've left undone. 
no matter how you've fallen short of love in your own life. And when we come to this table, all who are hungry are welcome to eat, and all who are thirsty are welcome to drink. The word Eucharist originates in the first or second century, and it literally means thanksgiving. And so now we say in prayer, O oh God, O oh God, it is a good and joyous thing for us to say thank you to you, God, at all times. But especially now, as this community, as this body of misfits and and orphans and outcasts and ragamuffins, we pause to give you thanks for all of the good gifts of our lives. We thank you especially for the good gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach good news to the poor, to grant sight to the blind, to set captives free. We thank you that through his life and death and resurrection, you have shown us the height and the width and the depth of your love. And so we ask you now, by the power of your Holy Spirit and according to your holy word, would you sanctify these elements, these gifts of food and drink, to become to us and for us the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, who on the night that he was betrayed took bread and cup and blessed them. After the supper that night, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we welcome you risen Christ. We pray that you would grace us with your presence as we receive this bread that we would likewise be broken and given for the sake of our neighbors. Amen. And also after the supper, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we welcome you, risen Christ. We thank you for this cup which speaks a better word than all of our violence and revenge and hatred and bigotry and division and debates and instead points us to your way of peace and forgiveness. O oh Christ, give us grace and power to embody your way as we receive this cup. Amen. And now I would like to invite you to receive this mysterious gift of Holy Communion. And here at DCC, we practice intinction, which is just a, an expensive word that says that you're going to hold open your hands, you're going to take the bread, you're going to dip it in the wine, and you can just say, thanks be to God. I'll pray that this would be a gesture of your open heart to receive the capital L love of the universe. Come when you're ready. Come when you're ready. Thank you.